Uh, you maybe have seen these stools, and maybe you uh, had heard what we were going to do today, but if not, um, we are having something that we do occasionally. I think the last time we did this was at some point last year, maybe a year and a half ago. We call it Ask Anything, and essentially what we do is rather than there being a prepared sermon, uh, we try to come with hopefully just prepared hearts, and you ask the questions, and we'll try to answer them. And so you can see on the screen there, uh, that is a phone number that you can send questions to. Uh, we would love for you, you don't normally hear this in church, but go ahead and get out your phone and uh, send us a text message if you have a question or questions, and really anything goes. These could be uh, theology-type questions, these could be questions from the Bible, they could be questions about our church, uh, they could be personal questions, uh, whatever you want to ask. Uh, our team uh, is going to try to uh, help us answer as many of those questions as we can. So I want to introduce you to the folks that we have here. Again, I'm Luke Simmons. I'm the lead pastor here. Seth Trout is part of our preaching team and leads our adult uh, ministry. So a number of ministries that all uh, relate to adults are under his leadership. This is Matthew Brazelton. Matthew, uh, you may not know this. Many people think of him as a worship leader because that's kind of how you experience him. But his main job is he's actually our pastor of operations. So all of the stuff related to facilities and finance and administration is all the stuff that he works on. And then Josh Watt down here at the end is also part of our preaching team and he oversees NextGen. So all the different ministries that go from birth through college. And so together we're gonna try to be as helpful as we can. Now here's, uh, I have a couple, I have three things to remember and then one request, all right? And then we'll dive into questions. So I don't see a lot of you texting questions. This is going to be really late, lousy if there are no questions coming in. Or if you just get to breakfast faster, I guess. So that's up to you. Um, so here's the first thing to remember is that 1 Corinthians 15, which we just read, tells us that some things are of first importance. Did you see that in verse 3? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared to all these different people. That is of first importance. What, what that means is everything in the Bible is true, and I think you could say everything in the Bible is important because it's breathed out by God, but it's not all equally important according to the Apostle Paul. So the closer it is to the heart of the gospel, the more important it is. And so we're going to answer some questions today that might be related to things that are of first importance, and then we'll try to also answer questions that aren't necessarily of the same level of importance. But I just think it's really key that we understand not everything's equally important. The closer it is to the gospel, the more important it is. Here's a second thing to remember, is that we grow through tension. Who likes tension? <laughs> Some of you sick people do, but, but most people do not like tension. It's uncomfortable, it's difficult, and yet, here's what I know, is you would, if you were to look back in your life, the ways you've grown emotionally, the ways you've grown spiritually, the ways you've grown relationally have almost always come through tension. And so there might be some moments today where you feel some tension, and that's actually an okay thing. We want you to lean into it and invite the Lord into that because we think that's how the Lord will help us grow. So we grow through tension. Here's the third thing, is try to consider our questions the beginning of the conversation, not the end. Okay, so if there's a question that you ask and you're not thrilled with how that question got answered, let what we said begin the conversation, don't let it end it. And if you wanna continue to talk more afterward, we'll all be up in the front left of the room and we'd love to help answer and push into those questions further. All right, does that make sense? You with me? All right, so those are three reminders. Here's one request. Please give us grace. We don't know what's coming. 
Uh, we've tried to prepare our hearts as well as we can. We're going to try to answer questions with as much scripture and as much wisdom as we can. But give us grace. We're, we're on the fly here. So that's kind of what makes this fun. All right? So I'm going to ask Josh if you would pray for us, sure. and then we'll dive in. Let's pray together. You gotta, if you were here and on this stage, you'd have every answer. God, more than that, you'd have a, a father's heart, a savior's passion. God, the sage's wisdom. You'd have it all, and you'd know every person in this room and the motivation behind every question, God. So we don't uh, come to this moment thinking that any human can fill your role or step into the spot that is alone for you. You are God, we are not, and yet there are questions that we need answers to, questions that you might not give us answers to, questions that are really uh, messing with us in certain ways, questions that come from pain, questions that come from a desire to know you more, God. So questions are good. Uh, people who ask questions are good. Tension is good, God. So help us to just uh, be faithful in this moment. Help uh, us up here to be helpful with our answers. And God, more than that, be a reflection of you. God, more than just uh, your mind, but your heart, God, and your care. So thank you for your care for this church over this past year. God, this is a sweet just time to reflect and to be here as a church looking back on a great year, God. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. All right. So first question is, does this make you guys nervous? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, yeah. Wouldn't it make you nervous? <laughs> Um, I will say, I've done this, I think, once before, and the questions weren't live, so it's more nerve-wracking that it's live, but it helps that there's four of us, yeah. because honestly, as you ask questions, uh, some of us are better at answering certain questions than others, and so it makes me less nervous to know I'm not up here by myself, and uh, so, yes, of yes, course, agree. of course it does. <laughs> All right, next question. Is the anxiety people experience when facing life-altering circumstances, such as serious health issues, a big test, issues at work, the potential death of a loved one, etc., the kind of anxiousness Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6, and is that form of anxiousness sin? Look up Matthew 6, uh, just in case that's not... The top of everyone's head. Here's what Jesus says there. This is Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Your heavenly Father knows what you need, etc. So, is that what Jesus is talking about when it talking about health issues, tests, work, death of a loved one? I was busy reading. Say, Hopefully yeah. you guys were thinking of an answer. I, I can just speak from personal experience. I yeah. feel like there's anxiety that, that leads us to um, kind of trusting in ourselves and anxiety that leads us to God. I think that passage ends with seeking first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. So uh, if it's anxiety that leads you to trying to figure it out on your own, 
um, that's not going to get you very far. But if it, if it pushes you deeper into dependence and trust in the Lord, then I would say uh, that's not a sinful anxiety. I think one of the problems that is happening in our current cultural moment is that every um, flinch of nervousness oriented toward the future gets called anxiety. And so you have some people who have like this chronic um, psychosomatic debilitating anxiousness that is needs to be medicated or uh, is uncontrollable and it kind of comes upon you and there's like anxiety or panic attacks. And then there's kind of like a general nervousness about something big coming up. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also, we do those are not the same. Those thing. are not the same thing. Yeah. yeah. But everyone called, oh, I'm anxious. Well, what? Well, you know, the speed limit is going from 55 to 45, <laughs> you know, yeah. or, or, or I'm anxious. Why? I don't know, but I can't get out of bed. And so those are yeah. two very different experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the, what Matthew said, the key question is um, the anxiety is an involuntary bodily reaction to something that I'm believing about the future or like that. And I think the question is what in this text is, what am I doing with that? Mm. Am I taking it to the Lord or am I holding on to it and saying it's up to me or else? Yeah. And so I think it's more a matter of what you do with your anxiety than whether you have anxiety or not. Yeah. And I think we need to differentiate between the normal everyday anxiety that this is talking about and the chronic medical anxiety that um, is involuntary. Yeah, great. All right, next question. How do you determine God's leading in your life for specific direction regarding decisions? That's a good question. We all have to make a lot of decisions in life. Um, I'll start with this. Um, so I, I think I probably subconsciously run it through a little bit of a grid at this point in my life. But one of the things would be, is it the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? You don't always know if it's the right thing to do, but sometimes you know it's the wrong thing to do. If I did that, it would lead me to sin. It would lead me to be selfish. It would lead me to be unloving. So that gets a no. Um, another great question, is this a wise thing to do? So not always is it right or wrong, but is this wise or is this foolish? Um, if it seems like it's not wrong and it's not necessarily foolish, then I start to um, think through uh, what do I want? Do I want it? <laughs> do I want to do this or do I not want to do this? Um, I ask friends. I seek counsel. But there's a principle in Psalm chapter 1. Uh, the first psalm talks about that the blessed person is the person who's rooted deeply in the word of God, who meditates on it day and night not walking in the way of sinners and sitting with scoffers. And then there's an interesting verse in there, and whatever he does, he prospers, which is not a prosperity gospel, just read the Bible and you'll get whatever you want. But it is saying if you're rooted in a life of relationship with God, your desires increasingly become what God would desire, so do what you want. And so um, kind of running it through that grid, and then obviously the, the bigger the decision, the more input I get from uh, other people who I trust and who I think have wise, wise counsel. Um, I think one of the foolish things that Christians sometimes do is play Bible roulette where they go, God, I need an answer. Then these two men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics, their hats, their other garments. I guess that means I need a coat. I mean, I like, so sometimes people do goofy stuff there, but that's how I take it. But uh, one thing, I feel like scripture uses fasting in moments like this a lot. Mm -hmm. So the book of Acts, all these churches are formed and then they're kind of like, okay, what's next? And it's always paired with fasting, uh, prayer, and especially fasting. So fasting is a, a kind of a God-given gift for us, especially, and it's used in a lot of ways, but a lot of ways in scriptures is for discernment on what God would have you do next. 
personally, congregationally, corporately, as your family. So fasting, and if you ever, there's a good book, God's Chosen Fast, that just walks you through basic kind of A to Z on getting started in fasting. So fasting is a, a, another way God gives us. Great. Let's go to the next question. Why should I pray for unbelievers in my life if their salvation has already been determined or predestined? Um, that is a good question. And since you and I taught a class on kind of predestination and you taught a class on prayer, so that's kind of both of these questions, I feel like you should take this since <laughs> you literally taught the classes on it. So hopefully uh, you can be helpful. Yeah. So here's the first reason is you're commanded to, and that should be enough. That, um, <laughs> if I understand. Next question. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's an obedience part of prayer, which is um, uh, that we're called to offer prayers for all types of people in all types of places and pray that ultimately they know Jesus. And so um, some of this, like what we could consider hyper-reformed theology or hyper-Calvinism ends up leaving behind kind of like a healthy understanding of God's sovereignty and drifts into this kind of fatalistic determinism, which is que sera, sera, what will be, will be. And this, uh, this view that minimizes or eliminates the role of human choices in what God's doing, and so I think it's also a misunderstanding of the way that God works in response to prayer, that God has chosen to work in response to the freely offered prayers of his people, and so uh, it's a false understanding of predestination uh, to say, my choices don't matter, my prayers don't matter, what will be will be. That's not Christianity, that's uh, uh, stoicism or uh, like a Greek vision of determinism, and so if that's kind of what you're thinking, you're actually not a reformed thinker, you're um, probably accidentally become swept up into Greek philosophy, and uh, you should not think that way. Um, but the, so I think the main thing is that God loves working in response to the prayers of his people. One of the phrases that um, we say a lot is the kingdom of God comes in response to the prayers of, of, of his people. And so uh, God is sovereignly working over history, but more than that, the scriptures reveal to him as a person who's actively involved within history, listening to his people, and he's a person responding to our prayers and so uh, you should pray for obedience and two God listens and he does act in accordance to our prayers I'll say quickly you should also pray because it'll change your heart and allow you to keep loving your friends rather than fatalistically dismissing them all right next question what happens when someone dies do they go straight to heaven or hell do they go somewhere to wait until the final judgment don't ask. <laughs> Don't ask you. What are you doing up here? Come on, man. Are there any? Are there any budget questions? <laughs> Just kidding. You could answer this, but I won't make you if you don't want to. Do one of you guys want to? I'll start. You guys can correct. Um. <laughs> Don't ask me. <laughs> okay, we won't. So I'll start with the stuff I'm clear on, and I know I think I won't get wrong, and then you guys can fill in. <laughs> So we're waiting for the last resurrection. So Jesus was the first fruits. His resurrection was kind of like a, what the, from the Jewish people. We, we thought everyone was getting raised on the last day. And Jesus was this surprise, like, one off as a first fruits in a picture of this is what's going to happen to all of mankind at the end of days in Jewish thought. So we're waiting for the final resurrection, meaning those that have died have not been raised back together with their body from here on earth, their resurrected body. So they are souls uh, somewhere, uh, but we're waiting for the final resurrection where Romans 2 talks about the final judgment. Every man and every woman will stand before God and give an account for everything in their entire life. It will be exposed in that moment, and those who have 
by righteousness and good deeds, serve the Lord, will go to everlasting life with him here on earth. Those who not will go to an everlasting punishment called hell in a body forever. Uh, the, the middle ground is what I'll pass off to one of you guys that has more. So the, the kind of waiting period, those that have died now. Yeah. yeah, helpful way that I've heard it said is that um, there's life after death and there's life after life after death. And so life after life after death is the bodily resurrection. That's what Josh was talking about. People be raised, believers and unbelievers, into eternal torment or eternal life. But the life after death, the, um, the in-between period, is like when Jesus is on the cross and he tells the guy, today you'll be with me in paradise. And also there's a sense in which people go to um, Abraham's side or Gehenna in the waiting room. So there's a point of once for man to die and then judgment, which is Hebrew 9 27 says. And so there is a conscious existence um, apart from the body that is a medium period. Mm-hmm. And then at the return of Christ, there's a bodily resurrection that Josh talked about. I agree. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right, next question. Can someone lose their salvation? Uh, No. No. God saves sinners. Uh, God keeps those he uh, saves. Um, Jesus emphatically said that uh, nobody, none of his disciples would be lost except for the son of destruction, Judas, who, which was by God's plan. Um, So, no. You can't lose your salvation. You didn't earn it. You didn't get it. You didn't achieve it. So therefore, nothing you can do can make you lose it. Now, I will say, some people seem to lose it. Because there are people who seem to follow Jesus for a long time and then walk away from that. And that's often more confusing. Go, gosh, what happened? Um, The best answer that we might have uh, would be probably, is it uh, 2 John or 3 John? One of, the, one of those, uh, John talks about they went out from us, but they were never yeah. with us. Yeah. So in other words, these were people who, um, kind of like in the parable of the soils, where Jesus talks about the soils, that some seed falls on rocky ground and some on uh, you know, weed-infested ground and uh, some on the sidewalk. And, and all of it sprung up and it looked really good, but then difficult things came and it, it withered and it proved to not be actually true fruit. And so... Um, Next question. In communion, why do we drink juice when the Bible says the disciples and Christ drank wine? That's interesting. I was thinking about this today <laughs> because occasionally some of the folks who lead communion will sometimes call it a cracker. And it's actually not a cracker. It's actually unleavened bread. It's matzah. And I like that. I want, it, I want us to call it bread because it's that's what it is. But then I was thinking, but we do juice and not wine. So I was actually thinking of this very question. So It's a budget question, really. Why not spend this? <laughs> <laughs> juice no, is cheap. Well, it's interesting. I'll tell you. Um, juice is when, cheap. when the church started 10 years ago, we actually did both. We had both. And at that point, the way communion happened was there were stations in the front of the room we were meeting. And people could come in and take the bread and pick juice or pick wine. And um, the, uh, it's, this is entirely a practical answer. Um, and, the reason, and what happened was there were some points where we actually ran out of juice and just had wine. And some people would go up and not want wine for whatever reason and sit back down and not take communion. 
And we went, well, gosh, everybody can drink juice, but some people, for various reasons, don't feel like they can drink wine. And so we said, well, uh, rather than make it more complicated, let's just make it simpler and allow everybody to participate. And so um, the reality also is that the wine uh, probably of New Testament days was not quite as strong as the wine of today. And so, uh, anyway, you have things to add there? You no. probably do. I mean, kind of, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the, 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 the main point is that it's crushed grapes. That's the whole yeah. imagery fruit behind it. It's fruit of the vine, crushed grapes, whether it's fermented a little bit or not at all or ton. And that's significant because? Because Israel is the vine that, bear, that bore fruit, or that bore terrible fruit, but no. Christ comes and he's the, the true and greater vine who bears good fruit, and he's, he's crushed for our, yeah. our salvation, is the way King James talks about it. And so it's his blood and his picture. And so it's a picture of the faithful vine being crushed yeah. and uh, his blood being Great. covered our sins. So that's that is good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, regarding the commandment that says, honor your mother and father, if I don't have any relationship at all with my father and a rocky relationship with my mother, am I breaking this commandment? What exactly is honoring your parents? I think you can take this one, Matthew. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, that's a great, I mean, that's a good question. I, I think that honoring is an interesting term, um, particularly when we consider the roles of uh, authority that God's placed in our life and um, the, the timing at which we respond to those different authorities, obviously it's different when you're younger and as you get older. Um, I mean, I, I'd say if you don't have a relationship with your father at all, then I don't know how you could, on, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know that you could do anything about that. Uh, rocky relationship with your mother. I think you're, what you want to do is to the best of your ability, um, honor her. Um, and that doesn't mean go along with things that you feel like are unhealthy. That doesn't mean don't set wise boundaries. Um, it doesn't mean lead your family and make choices that you feel like are best to, to, um, to kind of pursue the Lord's will for you guys. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think the, the general heart of the Lord is that God's placed parents in your life, generally speaking, to... Um, protect you and to guide you and they deserve honor and respect and obedience when you're young um, but if they're not fulfilling that role then uh, to, with as much grace and mercy as you can give I think you want to um, you know trust the Lord and, and and do what you feel like he's leading you to do that that's a really nebulous answer because I really need a lot more information I think to ask, answer the question well so can you raise your hand that <laughs> so Romans says, seek peace with all people as much as it is up to you. So I'd say that. I'd also say the struggle or the uh, sin of mine is when I want an opinion to go my way, I just ask the people that I know are going to line up with me. So in this case, I would be, just make sure you're asking specifically moms, older moms, moms who have had a strange relationships with their kids and just kind of get a more holistic picture at this rather than, so me asking a 30-something-year-old guy uh, and other 30-something-year-old guys, hey, my mom's really driving me crazy. What would you do? I'd write her off. Okay, what would you do? I'd write her off. Ask people who are going to have a different perspective and a more gracious and a more long-term perspective than you in this area. Uh, not, not to add more burden to you, but just I feel like the Bible says it's, it's a safe place when you have more counselors in your, in your back pocket. So. Let's go to the next question. 
How do you submit to God's sovereignty without being complacent or meh? <laughs> millennials it. texting questions. <laughs> yeah. the, the millennials with the meh. Takes one to know one, eh, Seth? All right. Um, I've sent a few text messages in my life. That's right. <laughs> huh. Uh, I'm trying to understand submitting to God's sovereignty meaning kind of just accepting what's happening to me. I don't like what's happening. I don't like how things are going on in the world. But God's sovereign, I guess I need to submit to it. That's probably the idea here. Yeah, you don't really have a choice. He is sovereign, like, <laughs> in that sense. I'm trying to understand why that would lead to complacency. Maybe just I'm, I'm not wanting to press forward in the mission of God because he's sovereign. Yeah, he's it, maybe it. it gets in kind of that fatalism you were talking about. Yeah, like a lack of self-efficacy or lack of belief that my choices... In, in English, por favor. Uh, a lack of, uh, lack of belief that my choices affect my outcomes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. So part of it is God's sovereignty. Um, what? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <have> <laughs> so, yeah. so I think part of it is God's sovereignty in like the political sense that he's the rightful king and so his word is final and his word is true. And so there's a sense in which, well, I don't agree with him, but he's the king, so his word goes, so why have opinions if my opinions don't matter? And I think that part of that is being able to voice that, that emotion, that there's a gap between mm. where God's at and where I'm at. That th like, there's a lot of Psalms in the Book of Lamentations that sound like that. Mm. Like, you're doing this, I'd rather you be doing this. Fine, I'll have it your way. And like, there's a real honesty to that kind of prayer life. So I think the main thing is when you're feeling that complacency or meh, uh, being able to pray that and be honest about it and not pretend that you're emotionally on board when you're not is a big deal. Um, yeah. Can I add something? If, if your view of the sovereignty of God or your doctrine of the sovereignty of God leads you away from God relationally, like away from prayer or away from engaging with him um, or with others in mission, you've missed the biblical picture of the sovereignty of God. So like God is a person who created persons with whom to relate relationally. That's the biblical story. You see it from the beginning to the end, is God makes us in a relationship with him, and he redeems us and rescues us so that we can be back into that relationship. And so if your view of sovereignty um, pulls you out of relationship with God and makes God like a cosmic puppeteer or a cosmic force rather than a person who took on flesh to be with you, to know you, um, you need to reexamine kind of the biblical story. So. Let's go to the next question. How is the church prepared to listen to and care for victims of abuse, domestic, physical, sexual, emotional, spiritual, etc.? Um, a lot of that falls in with uh, our counseling ministry and our care ministry, which is part of adult ministry. Will you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I, I would say that in the last year and a half in particular, we've gotten a lot better. Mm -hmm. um, we've grown a ton. I think that's true across all of redemption in here. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, a handful of women who've been really influential on us as pastors, kind of speaking up and helping us see um, blind spots, particularly around emotional and spiritual abuse. I think we all kind of recognized like physical violence and sexual violence and what that was, but I think the other dimensions of abuse were growing in our recognition of it and taking it seriously. Um, at, at this point, when people come forward and have... Um, different types of um, domestic trauma or domestic violence in their life. 
uh, we get plurality on it as quickly as possible, as, oft as quickly as the person. So I mean, we get multiple eyes on it. We bring, especially if it's a, a woman who's a victim, we bring women in the situation um, as quickly as the first meeting or the second meeting to make sure it's not just men um, overseeing this. We get um, lay people as well as staff people involved uh, to try and have multiple layers of accountability. Um, we get counsel from other congregations within redemption as well as experts outside of redemption who speak into things. Uh, we are, uh, so those are kind of like some of the, like the, the general principles that outline what we're doing. Um, we're working on formalizing more policies that'll make that um, more structural, but we've been as a staff doing more trainings with our pastors on uh, ways that you can totally blow it and how not to do that. So we've been growing in that, I think the last year and a half. Next question. What do you think is going to be the biggest hurdle for us becoming our community's best friend? That's a good question. Um, I'll take that. I think uh, it's that we're all busy and have a lot to do. And uh, taking on new relationships, taking on new activities, serving in new ways, just for most of us sounds like, <sighs> it, just, it just sounds tiring. Um, and so I think that is just going to be a challenge, is, th is really trying to think, and yet the, the hope of it, I think, is in the same challenge, which is to say, I think the way we become the best friend the community has is less by going and doing a bunch of new things and more about infusing all the stuff we currently do with prayerful dependence on God, a uh, strong sense of how God's at work in the moment, that we live before God's face, that all of life is all for Jesus is not just a neat slogan, but actually how I live my life this Tuesday. Um, and I think that to the degree we do that, um, we actually can become the best friend our community has a bit more. Um, I think the other big hurdle is that a huge part of our community is LDS, and they are not interested really in anything we're doing for the most part. And um, I think most of us, if we're honest, have kind of just said, well, they're unreachable. So, oh well, let's just move on to the other 60% of the people. And so I think um, one of the questions is just going to be, what's our heart? Do, we, do our hearts break for especially our LDS neighbors? Or do we just kind of write them off and go, well, to hell with them? Hmm. So I wonder what our heart is in that. So I think that's a big hurdle. Would you guys add anything? That's good. Okay, next question. Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitful and sick, but he also presents the promise that God gives us new hearts with new desires. So if I'm a Christian, is my heart wicked or not? Why do I still choose to sin? Man, I love that question. Great that's question. a good one. Uh I'll start. So sin, the way the Bible illustrates sin is more parasitic than mm. kind of its own entity. I don't know if that's the right word. Seth, you can correct me. Uh, it grabs onto something that's good, and it distorts, it twists, it, it confuses, it disrupts. So the, just so personal, the way sin plays out in my life is usually something good about me the image of God inside of me that God has designed, I use in a way that's twisted or distorted, whether that's sexually, whether that's my personality and the strengths of my personality. Uh, Satan uses 
the image of God in me and distorts it and twists it and changes it. So uh, are you wicked or are you sinful? You are redeemed with a new heart. You are made in the image of God, but you're still living under the brokenness of this world, and there are still uh, elements of brokenness within you and distortion uh, of the good that's in you from God. So I, I start with the good in you because a lot of people get in the Bible and go straight to sin and just camp out. We're just broken, busted. And that's true, but it's more we're made in the image of God. We've been distorted. We're sons of Adam. We become Christians. God gives us a new heart. And the way Satan works is he takes what's good and he just twists and confuses. That's what he did in the garden. He just kind of blows smoke screens and messes with us, and it just messes everything up. So you are a sinner. If you're a Christian, you have a new heart. A lot of the way sin is going to play out is with just what's naturally good given to you by God in a twisted way. So sin is tricky is probably the most simple way to say it. Yeah, one of my favorite verses about this is in Romans chapter 6 in verse 17. Uh, the Apostle Paul here has been talking about how our old self was crucified with Christ and we've been given this new life in him. And so he says this in verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. And I just love that phrase, obedient from the heart. In other words, when God changes your heart, he changes your wanter. You all of a sudden want to obey in a way that you didn't before. Um, and yet, the reality is, in the next chapter, he's going to talk about how I do the things I don't want to do and the things I know I want to do, I don't do. And so there is this reality when you, when you say, why do I still choose to sin? Because sin's tempting and because it's enticing and because you're weak and because you're still in a physical body and because there's a world and a devil that is doing everything it can to get you to get away from Jesus. That's why you still sin. Um, and that's why I still sin. And so I do have a new heart if, you know, in Christ. And yet I still live in this reality that I, I'm not yet uh, fully uh, redeemed. And so, yeah. Next question. Will there be a 5 p.m. service when we move into the new building? That is a great question, especially from the 5 p.m. service. So um, the answer to that is maybe. Uh, we don't know. We're thinking about it. I'll just tell you, um, I'll give you like the inside baseball on this, and then you can tell me afterward your opinion about it. Um, we're not taking a poll to <laughs> ask what we should do. But, but here's how I think about it. I think a lot of you that regularly come at 5 o'clock, you did it at first because you felt like we begged you to. Some of you, therefore, are like, as soon as there's a morning service you can go back to, you're there. And some of you have actually developed a real affection for this service, and you really like it, and it's become part of your life and routine, and you enjoy that. Um, and so that part makes us want to go, no, let's keep it. Um, the part that makes me most want to say we ought to have three back-to-back -back morning services rather than a standalone night service is a bunch of you also made commitments to serve. And it's very hard to serve when you go to one standalone service. Because if you really want to serve, unless you're going to be part of guest services, which is significant, for the most part, you have to come in the morning if you're going to actually serve so that you can attend at the five. And most of you aren't going to do that. Most of you won't do that. Most of you can't do that. And so that part makes me go, Man, everybody really likes this service, but are we actually doing them good by continuing to have it if they can't serve by, by coming to it? So that's some of what we're wrestling with, um, but we haven't decided 
about that. There's also conversations we're having about student ministries and when student ministries would meet, and so that factors in and some other things. But yeah, we're very much in process about that question. So, thanks. How can I express God's love to someone who I have hurt? I'm scared that will actually end up pushing them away from God. It's hmm. a good question. I just love the heart of that question. I'd say the first step is acknowledging you've hurt them and then giving them the space that they demand. So I've hurt you and I'm sorry. And if they say, stay away from me, then do that. I think acknowledging and respecting their boundary, depending on how bad you've hurt them, is a way of showing them love. I think you kind of harassing them for closeness will just make it worse. Okay. Pray for them. I mean, hopefully that's obvious, but yeah. All right, we've got time for maybe one or two more. Uh, next one. How do you explain hell to children or adults for that matter? Is it accurate to say that it's a place absent of God? Yeah, that's a great question. Have any right. of you explained this? As I've tried. <laughs> Go for it. Since I punted on the last hell question. <laughs> um, I mean, I, we talk about kind of the trajectory of this life and the choices God gives us. And um, people who choose to walk away from God and really don't want anything to do with him, God gives them what they want. So uh, hell is a place absent of the kind of blessing presence of God. It's not a place that God can't see or notice um, or isn't, you know, in a cosmic sense, still sovereign over. But, uh, it, but it's a place devoid of what is true and good and beautiful, which are all things that come from the character and presence of God. And so um, we emphasize with kids that this is a choice that everyone um, gets to make. And so uh, it's not so much God saying, ha, gotcha, you didn't say the right words or, you know, meet the right people and too bad, you're, you're done. Um, it's, it's more an issue of your heart desired what you're now receiving. So that's typically how I talk about it with adults or kids. Yeah. Good. Let's do one more. Do you have any wild dreams or aspirations on what being a best friend to Queen Creek could look like? So this question actually came in the first service, and the guys running the question said, I like that so much, we're going to end on that one every time. So I answered the first one, and uh, you answered the last service, and so maybe you, one of you guys can take this. We're actually going to post video from all three services. You can see all the different questions that got asked, but do one of you want to tackle it? I'll go quick, and then you can one-up me. So um, so I'd say my understanding Best Friend Community has is that we'd be a church where people can come in and, and get healthy. And by get healthy, I mean able to be non-anxious, loving, sacrificial presence um, in the whole of their life. And so when our church is birthing and strengthening healthy disciples who are centered on Christ and are able to, in freedom, lovingly and sacrificially serve their neighbors everywhere they go, then I think will be the best friend the community has. So it's that illustration that you used a couple weeks ago of the aircraft carrier, mm -hmm. that the planes come in, get healthy, and go out and engage in mission in, yeah. uh, in uh, decentralized ways. So it's more of a decentralized understanding I have. But that's the idea, is that we can really welcome hurting 
reactive, theologically unsound people and help them uh, become whole in every sense of the word. Yeah, the thing that came to my mind when this was asked was just how much uh, at the root of so much of the pain and brokenness in our community is uh, a brokenness in the home. And so one of my big prayers would be that uh, young couples would find tools and resources to be able to figure out marriage and figure out parenting before they make giant mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes, but um, I, I would pray and hope that there would be Christians in their circle somewhere that would be enough of a light that they could run to when they need help. So if we could spread out and just be honest about how the Lord's using us and that they could see our lives as a testimony of like, hey, there's something, there's something there worth, mm. worth pressing into. I would love to see just families strengthened. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for your questions. Uh, sorry there was a lot we didn't get to, uh, but uh, we did our best. And like I said, we'll be posting a video from all the different services. There's a good chance one of your questions ended up at one of those as well. So Seth, will you uh, pray for us? Father, I'm, thank you for, I'm thankful for the opportunity to uh, hear from your word and, and um, listen to questions that people have. I pray that the people who um, got answers that weren't satisfying, they'd give them the courage to um, continue to seek out answers. I ask for people who ask questions that didn't get answered that you would um, put people in their path who can maybe answer them. God, I pray that all of our people here at Redemption Gateway would be curious, that we wouldn't feel ashamed for having questions, we wouldn't feel dumb for having questions, but we would um, see questions as invitations and a deep understanding, and we'd receive those questions as a gift that help us find um, the good answers where they exist. And in the places where there aren't uh, satisfying answers, I pray that we'll be able to trust your character um, in spite of not understanding um, how you operate. God, I pray that we can be a safe place for questions and a community of people who uh, don't rely on the depth of our knowledge, but rely on the finality of your blood for our salvation. Amen.